Well, imagine it's a Friday afternoon. You've come home from work. You're, you're tired. You want to just relax. You're just about to get settled, and you hear a knock, knock at the door. A couple of men are standing there wearing suits, wanting to talk. They think they're salesmen at first, but then they ask if you'd like to hear about eternal life and have a Bible study, and you realize that they're probably Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or maybe Mormons. You never could really tell the difference. You think to yourself, man, this is, this is not quite what I want to do on my Friday night right now. You don't know too much about them. You just know that they believe some different things about Jesus than you believe. You know, they've got some strange teachings on Christ that he's not fully God, that he's just a, a creature, a, a, an archangel, something like that. So you say to them, well, sorry, I'm a Christian. We believe that Jesus is God. And you're halfway to just closing the door and going back to watching TV. But they say back to you, oh, well, we believe in Jesus too. But did you know that the Bible never actually says he's God? And you say back, well, yeah, yes, it does. And they ask, where? And suddenly your mind draws a blank. You know you've heard this before, but your brain is not firing up. You're caught off guard. You're a little bit flustered, and you can't, can't think of anything. So you just say back, well, look, it's just, just what I believe. I don't have time to talk right now. And you just close the door. Has this ever happened to you? If so, you can at least take some comfort knowing it's the shared experience of many Christians. Maybe you feel guilty, though, knowing you, you should have said more, you should have known more, and, and you're, you're probably right. Such experiences should convict you of your need to, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is within you. And sometimes that defense has to include the deity of Christ because that's part and parcel with our hope. If Christ is not the divine Messiah, we have no hope. For then his death on the cross was empty and void. All this goes to say, given the skepticism of our modern culture, plus the false teaching of other groups, it's all the more important for Christians these days to study the scriptures and be equipped as to the deity of Christ. Christ's deity is absolutely fundamental to our faith. And as you behold his nature more in scripture, it produces a deeper worship of this one we call the God-man. And that's something we want to do this morning, to behold his nature from Scripture. Now you might ask where this is coming from, and you can open your Bibles now to Philippians 2. We're currently making our way through the book of Philippians. And last week we studied this preeminent passage on the person and work of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, just magnificently captures and summarizes the, the person and work of Christ his deity and humanity, his incarnation and death, his humiliation and exaltation. And last week we tackled this whole passage in one fell swoop, getting the big picture story of, of Christ's life. Having done that now, there's, there's no real need for us to, to rush through and move on. Why? Well, this passage has so much to say about Christ. And you realize, you know, that's, that's why we're here. That's what church is about. It's about him. It's what the Bible is about. It's about Christ, seeing and savoring Christ. After all, what are we called? We're called Christians, which means Christ followers in a sense. So any opportunity we can get to slow down and further contemplate his person or his work, that's time well spent. That's what we're about. So there's no need to rush and move on. In fact, there's a lot more to behold about Christ from this passage in Philippians 2. Here Paul introduces some key doctrines worth exploring that we might know him better. And first up to bat is his deity. We have one of the clearest statements on Christ's divine nature in the passage before us. For example, look back again at Philippians 2 verses 5 and 6. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Then we covered these verses last week, finding some of the strongest and clearest assertions that Jesus is divine. He shares, that verse says, the very form of God, the essence of God. He is equal with God. And that's the truth you know, we covered last week, but in a measure we kind of sped through it because we had so much to cover. But it's not to be taken lightly. We could just move on and say, okay, yeah, these verses teach that Christ is divine. That, that's great. We believe that. Let's move on. 
But given how pressing and important the deity of Jesus is in our own lives and how much it's attacked, I figured it'd be worthwhile to just camp out here a little bit longer and, and build up your faith in regard to that truth. That's what we're going to do for a couple of weeks, actually. Normally on Sunday mornings, we, we take one verse or passage and, and go through it, bringing God's word to bear on our lives. But for a few weeks, I want to springboard off of what we learn here about Christ in Philippians 2 and bring really the, the larger counsel of God's word to bear on our lives. First, concerning his deity, the deity of Christ. Remember, <clears throat> what is the Christian life all about? We learned earlier back in Philippians 1, verse 21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ. The Christian life is defined by Christ. It's all about Christ. He's to be our treasure. He's to be supreme in our hearts. It's so easy, though, for us to get carried away and distracted by the things of the world where Christ is not functionally supreme. Other things just distract us and and steal away our devotion we get distracted. He is our treasure, but it's easy for that to get clouded. And let me tell you, though, there's nothing quite like studying the, the deity of Christ than to remind you that Christ truly is supreme. He is worthy of all of your adoration and praise. He's worthy of your worship and your devotion. He's worthy of your entire life lived, laid down for him. And so our intention is to Fill your minds with the truth of his person, that Jesus is God, so that your hearts may be freshly impacted. Let Christ reign as supreme in your hearts, having first place in all things. And like I said, nothing really does this like remembering his divine nature. Now, some of you might be thinking this sounds kind of familiar, and it should, because last year, we, we did a very in-depth study on the, the deity of Christ. When I say in-depth, I mean it. We spent 10 months studying the deity of Christ here on Sunday nights. No joke. It was pretty awesome. Talk about not being in a rush, though. I and mean, we went to every verse and just did like a whole lesson on pretty much every key verse or topic of Christ's deity. And so you might be thinking, well, isn't that enough? Have we like had enough? Well, look, for one, I know that only a fraction of you come to Sunday evening, so it'll be new to most of you anyway. And in addition, for those who have heard the long version, at the same time, we're going to hit the highlights. And what's the key to learning? Repetition. And hearing it all again or hearing the highlights again, I I only hope it further drives into your heart these truths that you can really know them internally and worship Christ as supreme all the more. So enough on that. We're going to start today by studying the deeds of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, his divine works. A great way to break down the deity of Christ is by looking at his DNA. And that should sound familiar to the Sunday night crowd. And by that, I mean the deeds, the names, and the attributes of Christ. The deeds, the names, and the attributes. From this, you find in scripture, Jesus does the deeds of God. He's called the names of God, and he possesses the attributes of God. You add to this the claims of Jesus to be divine and the the worship he received, and you have a a pretty crystal clear case of his divine nature. So we start this morning with his deeds. I want to highlight for you five divine deeds of Christ. We could say top five divine deeds of Christ. These are five works that belong to God alone. They're all displays of God's divine power. Yeah, as we see Jesus wield this power and work these works, you have all you need to know of his divine nature, that Christ is very God himself. So five divine deeds of Christ. And we start with this, number one, miracle worker, Jesus as miracle worker. Now, look, most Christians, when they think to display that the deity of Christ, they think of his miracles. Jesus was quite the miracle worker. He cleansed lepers, healed paralytics, opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. He even raised the dead. Christ turned water into wine, multiplied bread, stilled a storm, walked on water. That's not normal. You can't do that. Nobody can do that. These are supernatural things. 
And so you'll often hear Christians point to the many miracles of Jesus as proof of his deity. But here you have, you have to actually be more careful and more precise. That's because, to be honest, Jesus, he's not the only miracle worker in the Bible. Right? I mean, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, they performed some pretty amazing miracles. And Peter and Paul in the New Testament, they pretty much duplicated all of Christ's healings, even raising someone from the dead. So does that mean they were divine? You see, it's not enough simply to list the miracles of Jesus and say, well, see, there he's God, right? It's not enough. His miracles do, in fact, testify of his divine nature, but you've got to be more careful and precise in explaining how. What you have to understand is that any time any person in the Bible performs a miracle, works a wonder, breaks the laws of nature, they're displaying divine power. That's the whole point. It's divine power. But the thing is, for all the apostles and prophets, it's never even suggested that this power comes from them. They always know the power comes from God. For example, when Peter, he heals a paralyzed man in Acts 3, He goes on to tell the crowd, he says, don't be amazed at us as if by our own power we made this man walk. Basically, he has to tell him, like, hey, it wasn't us. It's not our power. And he goes on to point to Jesus. He says it was his power by his name that this man is walking before you today. It was Christ's power that healed this man. And that right there highlights the difference between all the miracles of Jesus and everyone else. All the apostles and prophets, they knew that they were merely channels of divine power. They did not possess that power in their own person. But Jesus was different. Although in the incarnation, he was not relying on his divine nature, he still possessed it. He still possessed all of that power. And the whole theme of the Gospels is that Jesus worked miracles unlike any other as a display of his own internal divine power. He was no mere man like Moses who happened to work some wonders. So, for example, the Gospels testify all over the place that Jesus had his power in himself. This is why all of Christ's miracles came as a result of his own authoritative word. He merely spoke and creation responds. The the storm just stops. He, He just speaks and stuff happens. Did you know that for Jesus, he never once prayed to God to work a wonder? Never once. He simply speaks and creation does whatever he says. By contrast, you often see the apostles and prophets praying to God for the power to do what they're about to do. It's almost humorous at times. In Mark 9, the disciples encounter a demon-possessed boy, and they can't cast the demon out. So Jesus comes up, he does it for them, you remember. And then they ask him later, they say, Lord, why why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus says back to them, well, well, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Remember? But did you notice when Jesus cast the demon out, he didn't pray. He He just said, go away, just cast it out. That's because the power and authority belonged to him. And the demons recognized that when they saw him, that he was the Holy One. Of God. Similarly, Jesus never invoked the name of God to work wonders. He merely spoke and acted. In fact, Jesus taught that his miracles actually testified of his union with the Father. That's not true for the apostles and prophets. For example, John 10:38, he said, "Believe in the works that I do, so that you may know that the Father is in me and I in the Father." This is, again, contrasted with the apostles who always appeal to the name of Jesus to do their works. That's because they understand their power is not their own. It comes from him. And that's because they understand he is divine. Christ himself is divine. Although it's true that others worked wonders, Jesus worked from his own power and his own authority. He displayed the power of God as the Son of God. Now, to be fair, I think Jesus as miracle worker, it's not the strongest case for his deity. It's there, it's true, it's 
It's, it's accurate. It's valid. But let's turn to some even greater works. Because Christ did things greater than heal people and, and raise the dead. How about number two? A second work of Christ, divine work of Christ. Creator. Jesus as creator. What is it that makes God, God? What belongs to our, our definition, our conception of God? What sets him apart? It is his person and his works, his deeds and his attributes. And in regard to his deeds, which we're studying this morning, top of the list of divine deeds is creator, God as creator. He's the creator, we are the creature. This is the most fundamental distinction between God and everything else. So much so that all throughout the Old Testament, God as creator sets him apart from from all of the things, all other false gods. God alone made the heavens and the earth and all they contain. And that's how you identify false gods. They didn't. God simply spoke all things into existence from nothing. I mean, have have you tried doing that? It doesn't work. You can take some wood, build a house, but you cannot cause a tree to grow, let alone speak a tree into existence. It is so clearly a divine work and power. That power belongs to God alone, the power to create from nothing. But that being the case, what does it say about Jesus as he is several times in Scripture defined and described as the creator? And not just the creator, the creator of all things. I mean, did you know that the Bible teaches we actually owe our existence to Christ, God the Son? Listen to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. It says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Notice how comprehensive this verse is. It says all things. I mean, you name it. Physical world, spiritual world, he says. All things have been created through Jesus and even for Jesus. Elsewhere in scripture, it says all things were created for the Father. And here it says all things were created for Jesus. So, so which is it? Well, it's both, because both are part of the Godhead. There is only one God and creator. Yet, as this God also exists as three persons, each divine person shared a role in creation. This is why we find verses which depict the Son as being the creator. The book of Hebrews explains this distinction well. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Through Christ, he made the world. We can actually get more precise now on how the one God made the world. All three members of the Trinity were involved. God the Father decreed creation, but God the Son, Christ, he carried it out. He's the agent of creation. Don't you see this reflected in, in the opening verses of the Bible? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Father. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There's the Spirit. And verse 3, then God said, let there be light. There's the Son. You're thinking, wait, wait, where's, where's the Son in that? I don't see that. But how did God create the world? Simply with his word, his divine word. And what do you know? Who is Jesus? He is the word of God, the word made flesh. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle John, he upholds and teaches the deity of Jesus in the beginning of his gospel by paralleling Genesis 1.1. Listen to John 1.1, where John says, In the beginning was not God. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You see, there's really only one explanation for all these passages. There's not two gods. There's not three. There's only one God. Yet this one God exists in three persons revealed to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. And as such, they all participated in the work of creation, which was exclusively a divine work. This also explains Genesis 1.26, where you might remember God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Who's God talking about? I thought there's only one God. Well, there is. Yet he's three in personhood, and Jesus is one of those divine persons. Now, I know that stuff can start to hurt your brain after a little while because God is transcendent. Still, even if it's hard to wrap your mind around, what the Bible teaches is clear. That God alone is the creator of all things, and so is Jesus. Jesus is divine. He shares in the divine nature. Just like Philippians 2, 6 says, he exists in the very form of God, the essence of God is in Christ. Now next, very much related to God's role as creator is God's role as sustainer. This is a third divine work of Christ as well. Number three, sustainer. Sustainer. Excuse me. Not only is it up to God's divine power to create all things, it's just as much up to his divine power to sustain all things. Everything in creation owes its continued existence to God's sustaining divine power. There's not a single atom floating around in the universe that does not owe its continued existence to God's sustaining power. All things are upheld by God's power. And if God merely withdrew this power, all things would cease to exist. Scripture is clear on God's work as sustainer of all things. For example, Paul testifies to the Gentiles in Acts 17, verses 24 and following. He said, The God who made the world and all things in it does not dwell in a temple made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and exist. I mean, that makes sense that God is sustaining all things. His power made it all, and he, he keeps it running. He keeps us going, gives us breath. He holds our atoms together. He is the sustainer of creation. Yet, once again, we also find Jesus as being described as the sustainer of all creation. It's no longer that surprising, seeing that we found he's also the creator. But just the same, in the same passages, in fact, which describe him as creator, we find descriptions of him as also sustainer. We just read Colossians 1.16, which said that all things have been created for Jesus and by Jesus and through Jesus. And the next verse, verse 17, says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. This word speaks of the continued existence of things, all things. Christ's power is like the glue that holds all of creation together, keeping it from spinning out of existence. Similarly, we just read Hebrews 1, verse 2, which says, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, through whom he appointed Uh, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And the next verse says, and he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's really a stunning verse on the deity of Christ. It says Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Uphold Pharaoh in the Greek means to carry something, to bear it up, to sustain it. In the ancient world, the ancient Greeks thought of the Titan Atlas as carrying the world, sustaining the world on his shoulders, bearing the world 
on his back. But in reality, that, that's Jesus. He bears up all of creation, not on his shoulders, but by his word. He says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Not God's power, his power, which is the same. So you put these verses together, actually. We learn that Jesus holds all things together and he holds all things up. This is Christ as sustainer. In the same way that we learn of God as sustainer, we see Christ as sustainer. And being a fundamentally divine work, this is Jesus as God. Now already we can, we can pause for a moment and just reflect a little bit on what this teaches us about Christ, even his work on the cross. And think of his divine nature. Think about this. You know of Christ's treatment leading up to and including his death on the cross. You had wicked, evil, godless men. They persecuted him, beat him, slapped him, mocked him, tortured him, eventually executing him in a most humiliating way. It's such a gross, undeserved injustice, obviously. And all the while, Christ was in reality their creator. He made them. He knew them by name. He knew all their days. And furthermore, it was his divine power that sustained them. Every breath of air they drew into their lungs while they were killing him was from him. And the word of his power ensured that they continued to exist. So just think how easy it would have been for Jesus to simply withdraw that power. I mean, forget calling down 72,000 angels. All Jesus had to do was unveil his divine nature and simply stop sustaining them. And they would have just disappeared out of existence. But as you know, Christ didn't do any of that. Why not? Well, in great humility, he came to save his fallen creation. And the only way to pay for the sins of man was to bear those sins on his shoulders as well. Jesus, who knew no sin, had to be made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he willingly bore not only all creation on his shoulders, so to speak, but he bore the cross on his shoulders as well for, for your sake. Knowing who Jesus is, just think about, think about that truth. Understanding the identity of the one who was carrying that cross and who died on the cross. I mean, you think your problems are big in life. And they might, they might be, they might feel that way. Life can be overwhelming. There's a lot of trouble, like Rod was saying. You live long enough, you're, you're going to find trouble. Think of all the trouble in your life right now. Maybe sometimes God seems far off, distant, is even there. Does he care about me? But just see how much God cares for you in, in Christ. Look at what he's already done for you in sending Christ. Your maker and your sustainer, he knows you. He sees you. He, he loves you. He cares for you. And he proved it by sending Christ. Life is full of trouble, but you have to see Jesus as the cure, the remedy for all of life's ills. His death, his resurrection, his atonement, the new life he offers you. That, that's actually the answer to all of your life's troubles and ills, temporary and eternal. You have to see Christ as the plan that your maker and your sustainer made for you. He's giving you a treasure, life's treasure to behold, to make all things new. You have to go to him, though. Why do you look for comfort and for help in all these other areas? Instead, go to Christ, the one who made you, the one who bears you up. Like he said, cast all your burdens on him. His shoulders can handle that, too. He will then give to you his load, which is light, which is easy. But you have to go to him in faith. You have to treasure him and follow him and do that today. Place your trust in Jesus. He will sustain you. Think of all your troubles. He can sustain you through your trouble. You must go to him. Well, there's a few more divine works 
to cover. I want you to consider. So, speaking of his humility in saving us, despite being our creator and sustainer, this brings us to number four, Jesus as Savior. Jesus as Savior. Now, Jesus as Savior, you already know that. You already believe that he's the Savior. How does that show he's divine, you might wonder. What you have to realize, though, is that in the Old Testament, God is supposed to be the Savior. In fact, God alone promised that he would be man's sole Savior and Redeemer and Deliverer. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's work of redemption, it's right up there with his work of creation as being a divine work. It's something that he does and he alone can do to save men. Listen to how closely God himself identifies his role as Savior with his own nature as God. Here's God speaking through Isaiah. He says, Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11. He says, understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It's part and parcel with his own definition of being God. He's God, there's none other, and also there's no Savior beside me. You may have taken this fact for granted, that it was to be Yahweh, the Lord God, who declared himself to be the only Savior of mankind. But as you turn to the New Testament, what's happened? It is now the Lord Jesus who is the sole Savior of mankind. Titus 1.4, for example, says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Well, I thought, I thought God is supposed to be the Savior, the only Savior. Well, he is. Both God the Father and God the Son stand side by side, sharing together the one divine work of salvation. In fact, later in Titus 2, Paul will call God the Father Savior and Jesus Savior interchangeably in the same breath. They're both Savior. They're both divine. Jesus comes on the scene the promised Messiah, and his whole identity is wrapped up in being the Savior. And don't forget, the name Jesus means, do you know? Yahweh saves. His name means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the Lord come down to save his people, just like Yahweh promised he would do. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, and so Peter preaches, Acts 4.12. He says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Just just think about how staggering a statement that is coming from Peter. Peter, he's this strict monotheistic Jew. And all throughout history, the Jews, they've invoked the name of Yahweh as their only savior. The only name given under heaven by which men must be saved is that of Yahweh, the God of their fathers. Yet without contradiction, the apostles can now say, no, the only name given for salvation is Jesus. For Jesus is the Lord. Hence you have verses like Acts 16, verse 31, where Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You can see throughout the New Testament, Jesus as Lord has totally replaced Yahweh as Lord in the message of salvation. But that's okay. That's by design because Christ is God come down. Alrighty, that's, that's stunning evidence that Jesus is the true God. The New Testament views Jesus as Savior, not as contradictory, but complementary to God as Savior, for Jesus is God. But there's even more. The New Testament also teaches and shows Jesus as possessing God's sovereignty over salvation. Jesus is depicted as standing between us and the Father, and he chooses who comes to know the Father. Matthew 11:27, Jesus said, 
No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. It's up to the Son to will to reveal the Father to people. It's his will. He chooses. He's sovereign in salvation. And furthermore, Jesus claims for himself the absolute divine prerogative of saving sinners evidenced by forgiving sins. Remember that? Jesus encountered this paralyzed man. But this man had great faith. So Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark 2, 5. But the scribes around him, they start flipping out. Reasoning in their minds, like, wait, this, that's not right. It's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. But Jesus goes on to display his divine authority over sin. He says, Mark 2, 9. He says to them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And that's because there's never been anyone like Christ, the God-man. The Jews tried to kill Jesus for such blasphemy, and in a measure, they were right. No man has the power, the authority, the position to declare sins forgiven. No man or angel has that authority. That is God's and God's alone. They were right in that. They just failed to see who they were talking to. Christ, as the Lord God, has that power and that authority. So listen, the next time you remember and praise Jesus as your Savior, just remember the only way he can be your Savior, the only way he can forgive your sins, is by being the divine Lord. Christ is the divine Lord. Lastly, now we'll finish with this. Number five, a fifth divine deed of Jesus is judge. Jesus as judge. Now here, here you have the flip side with Jesus as Savior. Everybody loves to believe Christ is Savior, that he, he's loving. In fact, he's only loving. Meanwhile, God the Father, he's just this harsh judge. He's only a judge. But they fail to realize that Christ is just as much a judge as the Father. In fact, when Jesus returns, do you know what he does? It says that he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. He is judge. And the point we're making here is that is a divine work as well. That's supposed to be God's job. Only God can judge for no created being. Again, not even a supreme angel has the power or the authority to judge the universe. Indeed, Genesis 18.25 describes God as the judge of all the earth. Only God has the power and the knowledge and the wisdom and the righteousness to judge everything. Yet we find all this judgment equally belongs to Jesus. Listen to this. It's a pretty stunning verse, John 5, 22 and 23, where John says, or where Christ, Christ John, John is recording what Jesus says. So Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That, that, is, that is insane when you think about what he's saying. This is another way we see the triune God working together to judge, just as the triune God worked together to create. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son to carry out. Judging the world in righteousness, it's the Father's decree, but God the Son carries it out. But note carefully in that passage the purpose why will God the Son carry out all judgment? He said, 
so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So, so what Christ is saying is that in the same way all people are to honor and praise and glorify and worship the Father for his role as judge, in the same way they are to honor and worship and praise and glorify the Son for the very same thing. To honor the Son just as they honor the Father. God doesn't share glory like that. But it doesn't get much clearer. If Christ is not God, even if he's the highest angel there is, that's still utter blasphemy. But it's not because it's true. When Jesus comes to judge, who is the judge of the living and the dead, he will sit on his glorious throne, the nations will be gathered before him, and he will pass judgment. Matthew 25. And speaking of that day, the day of judgment, do you know what that day was called in the Old Testament? They always looked forward to it, and they called it the day of the Lord, meaning the day of Yahweh. It was the day of Yahweh, the day when God, that the covenant name of God, when, when that God would himself finally judge the world and restore all righteousness. It was the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. But, but you know what? In the New Testament, the day of Yahweh is everywhere replaced by the day of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus. It, it, just, it all of a sudden changes. We look forward to now everywhere the day of the Lord Jesus. In fact, in our book, Philippians, three times Paul looks forward to the day of Christ Jesus. Like Philippians 1.6, he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But, but wait, it gets even more stunning than this. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. It was called the day of Yahweh because it was the day when Yahweh himself promised that he would come to earth to judge. Did you know that? Did you know in the Old Testament, God himself promised that he would come down to earth personally to judge? Several times, Yahweh refers to himself coming down to judge. Psalm 96, verse 13. The psalmist calls all creation to rejoice, he says, before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. And it's talking about Yahweh there. Isaiah 40, verses 9 and 10. He says, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God, Yahweh God, will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. It's picturing Yahweh God coming down, descending to judge and to save his people. See, Yahweh himself promised to come to judge the wicked, to rescue the righteous on the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. What you've got to realize, though, is that promise is fulfilled in Jesus who is Yahweh made flesh. On that day, the day of Yahweh, the day of Jesus, he will be the one who comes down. He will be the one which Isaiah said, here is your God, come to judge. Just like John saw in his vision, Revelation 19, verse 11, who did he see come down? He says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it, Jesus, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Like we learned last time, in Philippians 2, the same Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, he will return and he will be exalted. The righteous will be rescued and the wicked will be judged by him on his day, the day of the Lord. In fact, I've got to show you one last thing. In fact, we can come full circle now back to Philippians 2. If you're still there, look again at Philippians 2. This is the passage we springboarded off of. Speaking of the day of the Lord, when Christ will come, what will happen on that day? We get a summary in verses 9 through 11. So look again at Philippians 2, verse 9. He says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him, 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So on that day, every knee will bow to Jesus, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. But do you see what's going on in this passage? Do you notice how that phrase in verse 10, every knee will bow. In your Bible, it's probably in all caps, right? You see that? That's because Paul is quoting the Old Testament. And as you look that verse up, guess what you find? In the Old Testament, Yahweh himself promised that when he came to judge, every knee would bow to him. Every tongue would confess him as the God Almighty. That verse is Isaiah 45, verse 23, where where God says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. It's no accident, though, that Paul quotes that verse and he applies it to Jesus because do you get it? When Christ comes, all of this is fulfilled. For Jesus is the Lord God, Yahweh, come down. He's God incarnate. He's the Lord, our righteousness. He's Yahweh saves. And on that day, he will rescue his people and judge the, the wicked. And all will confess him as the Lord. Pretty amazing stuff, I think, at least. Jesus as divine miracle worker. Jesus as creator. Jesus as sustainer. Jesus as savior. Jesus as judge. We could actually add many more divine works, but this is just a highlight reel. You put it all together, though, and we consistently see Jesus doing what God does. He he works the works of God, works that only God is supposed to do. Divine prerogatives belong to Christ, telling us nothing other than he is God himself. The first part of his DNA, the deeds of Jesus, bear witness to his deity. Now, just to finish here, I I know that for most of you, if not all of you, you came here this morning already believing that. You know, if I gave you a little membership application, had a a question like, do you believe Jesus is God? You'd you'd check yes. Okay, great. You're an Orthodox Christian. That's good. But you see, there's another purpose behind studying all that we have this morning. Yes, you need to fill your mind with the truth of his divine person. That truth is then meant to trickle down to your heart and change how you live. It's meant to convict and convince you that Jesus truly is supreme. If you take away just one thing from the deeds of Christ, realize he really is supreme. Being truly divine, he's truly supreme. And being truly supreme... He should truly come to have first place in all things in your life. You call on him as the divine Lord. You should live like he is your divine Lord. Seeing Jesus as the supreme Lord transforms the Christian life from ritual to relationship. A lot of Christians, they read the Bible. They pray. They go to church. Why? Well, it's what you're supposed to do. It's what, it's what we Christians do. Wrong. That's mere ritual. God doesn't care about your ritual. But only when you see Christ as supreme is all this stuff transformed and you you now you you want to read the Bible. Why? Because that's where you let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And you you want to pray because that's how you commune with your supreme Lord. And you, you know you want to go to church because that's where you get to call on his name with others who believe he is supreme. So you just have to ask yourself this morning, is Christ truly supreme in your life? You have to come to the place where you deny self and enthrone him in your heart. And with that comes supreme peace and joy in life. He gives you his joy. And what, you don't want that? I'm sure you've experienced all other hopes in life are false. When tough times come, people, what do they turn to? Turn on the TV Maybe medication, drugs, hobbies, friends, self. 
And by design, these are all false hopes leaving you in the end. I'm sure you know, still feeling empty, hopeless, helpless. But how about you try turning to your creator, your sustainer, your savior, Christ the Lord. And he can do a miracle in your life because he's still a miracle worker. Then he offers you the miracle of new birth with new life and everlasting peace and joy. But it only comes to those who truly see him and make him supreme in their own lives, in their own hearts. So may you do this today or renew Christ as supreme in your heart. As you behold his divine deeds in scripture, let this deepen your confidence. He really is the divine Lord. He really is supreme and therefore worthy of my entire self given over to him. Cry out to Christ as your Savior to change your life, to deliver you, lest he be your judge. But remember how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12, the psalmist says, Worship the Lord, worship Yahweh with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Then he says, Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Make Christ your refuge, your strength, your tower, your shield. Make him supreme in your life and enjoy his life given to you. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we do pray and and come before you this morning knowing that you are supreme as the one true God. There is only one God. Yet, Lord, you've revealed yourself to, to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we desire to know you rightly as revealed in your word and worship you rightly. And, Lord, it is your delight that we behold the Son as supreme in our lives as well for the supreme work he did. Though being divine, though equal with God, not losing a single attribute or losing deity, nonetheless, he assumed humanity, took on a human nature, and humbled himself even to death on a cross. Lord, we thank you for that, our Lord Jesus, and we do exalt you now. You are the supreme Lord. We see, we see the testimony everywhere. You work the works of God. You're our creator and sustainer, our savior, and thankfully not our judge. We've passed out of that judgment only by your grace. But we praise you for that as well, Lord. We here among this, these people in this church, we are those who we will bow the knee right now. We'll confess with the tongue right now that you are Lord. We don't need to wait until that day. We do so now because we believe. Any here, Lord, this morning who have not believed and bowed that knee, we pray you convict them and convince them that Christ is being the divine Lord, the only way and truth and life. The only path to the Father and his salvation is through the Son. Convict them and convince them, Lord, and may they pay homage to the Son and not perish. May we all be blessed this morning as we leave, taking our rest, our shelter, our comfort, our refuge in the Son, making him our supreme treasure and just living lives as if that's true living lives where Christ is supreme. To the praise of his name, to the glory of the Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen.